3: justice and gusty renegade in for another episode hopefully to share constructive information about how the system of racism white supremacy works and uh, hopefully we can use that understanding to help replace the system of racism white supremacy with a system system of justice as soon as possible Um, our guest today uh, if you've been listening to the cows you have heard uh, this book pop up over and over again. Uh, Dr. Martin Kavorkian first mentioned it back in May. Uh, Professor Frank Wu, Howard University, mentioned it when he was on the show earlier this month. Um, incredible book, uh, really uh, thoroughly examining how uh, the classification of who gets to be white, uh, how that's been decided in various court cases, how that's changed, uh, what has influenced. Uh, the decisions on who gets to be white, who is excluded from being on the white team—very, um, uh, just incredible book. Very constructive. Uh, privileged to have him on the program today, uh, Professor uh, Ian Lopez, University of California Berkeley. Are you on the line,
0: sir? I sure am, and glad to be here.
3: Thank you. We are privileged to have you, sir. Um, could you tell our listeners um, just anything you think would be helpful, so they have a better background of? who you are, and why you wrote this book, why you're doing this work.
0: Sure. Uh, So I'm Ian Haney-Lopez. I'm a law professor at uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, I focus on race and American law, teach constitutional law, equal protection, uh, courses on race, and right now on colorblindness. And I've had a long-standing interest in race, uh, race and racism, stemming from Uh, really from law school or or even earlier from my own biography growing up as a mixed-race person in Hawaii and then uh, coming to the mainland and seeing how starkly uh, the mainland continued to be segregated between white and black.
1: Hmm.
3: Hmm. Um, I know when I got your book, uh, there's a uh, photograph uh, of you on the back of the book, and – I think we got disconnected, but I think...
0: Yes, I think think so.
3: Probably some interference. I'm glad you were able to hang in there, sir. Um, I'm still here. Okay. Um, Everybody's here, Justice, myself, and Professor Lopez. Uh, Difficult... Yes, you're here. I can hear you, Justice.
4: Oh, Okay, thanks.
3: Okay. Um, I was saying um, before the interference, um, when I got your book... There's a photograph of you on the back of the book, and I looked at the photograph, and I thought, oh, okay, this could be a white person. I'm not sure. Um, then when I read the book, I thought, oh, okay, this is a non-white person. Um, to clarify, I guess, for our listeners, uh, are you a non-white person?
0: Yeah, I would uh, – absolutely. Uh, but but le- but let me expand on that, and let me, let me start with my biography, and then we'll circle around to, to the identity I claim and why I claim it. Um so my mother is from El Salvador and, and dark-skinned, and my father is white and uh, uh, third or fourth generation Irish descent. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was I was uh, born and raised in Hawaii. Hmm. So in Hawaii, I, I uh, grew up under what's called a hapahaoli or part white identity and didn't think much of my identity racially one way or the other, um, didn't think of myself as white, I didn't think of myself as Latino, although I had a lot of affinity for uh, my mom's culture, my mom's family, went to El Salvador several times, spoke Spanish at home. Uh, It wasn't really until I came to the mainland that I really began to think about how race operated. And what I saw in the mainland was a a couple of things really uh, struck me. One was how starkly segregated the mainland was. And the other was how natural that seemed to everybody. That is, it was literally unremarkable to most people. So in that context, I began to become more and more politicized, uh, more and more interested in the question of race, partly because, uh, because of the way I was treated. Um, those people who didn't know me tended to treat me with a little bit of susp- suspicion, or some people did, with a little bit of suspicion, even some hostility, uh, including being stopped by the police for being in white neighborhoods. On the other hand, once I made my identity clear, usually by showing uh, uh, an ID card for an elite university um, or otherwise by speaking in ed- the educated English, um, people would treat me deferentially. Things would change. And I gradually came to realize that that deference wasn't the deference due me as an individual but rather it was deference being extended to me as somebody who was being re-racialized as white. Mm -hmm. That is, in these encounters, as people tried to locate me racially, they would often start with uh, skepticism or even hostility. But once they could locate me by my name, uh, by my accent, by my education, uh, within... Uh, uh, the white category, then they would extend to me what they regarded as, as due regard for me as somebody um, who merited deference, who merited respect, who merited decent and humane treatment. But it was really a function of coming to understand me as white. And I, and I realized this partly through, through the contact with the police uh because there's just enormous shifts as they would uh you know the the first time somebody would uh, i remember being stopped on the waterfront in baltimore Uh, i was walking along the waterfront looking at boats and a couple of police pulled up in a golf cart and jumped out and you know let me see some id very hostile very aggressive and and at that point i still um, had a hawaii driver's license and so they saw the hawaii driver's license and he said, wow, Hawaii, that's great. Oh, you know, that makes sense now. My wife and I were really want to go there for our vacation. Welcome to Ball And it's just an incredible shift in, in how people were treating me. Hmm. And I realized that the part of this dynamic was that they were erasing my Latino identity, that they, that I was here on this margin in this liminal space between white and non-white, drawing questions on that basis. And people started erasing that that the the non-white part of me and started saying no we're gonna we're gonna treat this fellow as if he's white so in graduate school uh, though I had grown up with with uh, you know under the name Ian Haney which is my, you know my my, uh, uh, my father's name in graduate school I decided to follow follow the Latino custom of also using my mother's maiden name and so I changed my last name legally to Haney Lopez. Hmm. And that made it much more difficult for people to, to, to simply understand me as white, and, and people began to understand me as Latino um, or perhaps as mixed race. Okay, so that's, that's a sense of my biography a little bit, of this trajectory. Let me, let, me, let me address a little bit more uh, specifically this question of how I categorize myself racially and why. I understand myself and hold myself out to be racially Latino. And I do so because I understand race to be a political identity rather than a biological identity. So one might respond to this idea that one is racially Latino by saying it doesn't make sense to describe Latinos as a race. How can Latinos be a race? There are Latinos who are fair-skinned. There are Latinos with African features. There are um, Latinos of Asian descent. Latinos aren't a race. That's true if one understands race biologically. But it's a mistake to understand race biologically. Race isn't primarily uh, about biology. It's about social divisions that give meaning to uh, uh, claims of biological difference. Race is rather... A political identity, well, political in what sense? political in the sense that race has to do with how one holds oneself in in terms of hierarchical relations, relations of privilege and subordination. So I could, if I wanted, pass as white. That would be a political decision, and it would be a decision that would say that would say, I want the privileges of being white for myself, and I'm willing to claim those privileges even at the expense of upholding a hierarchical system of white over non-white. Mm. I don't want to do that. I would rather say of myself, I'm Latino in a political sense, in the sense of rejecting the privileges that, could, um, that accrue to people who claim to be uh, white Mm -hmm. and instead say, no, that's exactly what we need to reject. We need to reject a system in which race is associated with privilege and with disadvantage. Hmm. Fascinating.
3: Wow. Someone had just uh, suggested uh, that I make an effort to get a guest on the program who could pass as a white person, and you plopped in our lap. How about that? (laughs) Um, uh, I'm going to... Get ready to pass off uh, to my co host Justice, see if she has some questions. Um, but I wanted to ask for this program, uh, The Cows, Context of White Supremacy. Uh, I have unfortunately uh, concluded that we are in a system of racism, white supremacy. I believe in your book you use the term uh, white domination as yeah. well. Um, my definition uh, for racism, white supremacy, or white domination is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, Do you feel that such a system does in fact exist and do you think that definition is accurate uh, to describe that system?
0: So I, I, think I, I, think, um, I think I disagree with it on a couple of different levels. Uh, uh, starting from... So, so a global system of people classifying themselves as white and dedicated to oppressing and subjugating those they classify as non-white. Mm. I think that misunderstands the, the racism dynamic. Uh, it, it's the, the dedicated to oppressing and subjugating. I don't think anybody thinks of themselves as being dedicated to oppressing and subjugating. Uh, or very few people. I'm, I'm sure there are, there are sociopaths who do. Mm. Uh, but racism is not sociopathic. It is not being done primarily by paths, though they may get off on it and be the worst sort of abusers, whatever. That's not its principal impetus. If it were, it would be much easier to deal with. I think racism... Uh, And I would say more fundamentally, race itself is invented as an ideology that can legitimate the exploitation of others, exploitation in terms of expropriation of land, uh, uh, dispossession, um, expropriation of labor, uh, all sorts of coercion into forced working, you know, into uh, uh, forced uh, working systems. In that sense, race, race, and racism are deeply embedded in the colonial project, in empire building. It's really about the extraction of wealth. And so, if you if you have as your definition, this is about oppressing and subjugating. Oppression and subjugation become means and they 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 are essential means for the extraction of wealth uh uh for the deployment of power but they're not the impetus they're just the means the the impetus really i think is about about wealth and power and so so i so so my first concern would be this, uh, operating under a definition of supremacy that focuses on um that, that, that tends to privilege the harm aspect, as if that's, in a way that suggests that's the motive. It's not the motive. It's the means. The the motive is power. It's wealth extraction. It's it's status. Right. Those are the motives. And 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 because those are the motives, just about everybody becomes invested in race and racism. Right. It's a way of securing privilege for oneself. And race and racism become ways of rationalizing what one does to other human beings as one seeks to arrogate power and wealth and privilege to oneself as one participates in denying it to others. And this can be from the wealthiest, uh, uh, you know, sort of big capital. Empire types to working class folks trying to preserve union jobs for themselves. The impetus is, is wealth, power, status. The means often become oppression and subjugation. But we but we should not think that that oppression and subjugation are the primary ends of racism. I, 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 so I so I think that's a mistake. Um, the other concern I have is that. To talk about a persistent system of white supremacy is in some ways, to to my mind, is to give short shrift to what has happened over the last 40 or 50 years. I think that, that really starting with World War II and the advent of Nazism, a notion of Explicit notions of race supremacy came into global disrepute, and now it's only people at the far fringes of, of uh, society, of, of, of the different societies around the world, who explicitly endorse a notion of biologically based uh, group supremacy. You just don't have that anymore anymore. So it's important to recognize that 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 era of white supremacy as an explicit, publicly-endorsed ideology of biologically-based group superiority is over. And then it's equally important to recognize that hierarchy of white over non-whites continues uh, and continues very forcefully, even in the absence of an explicit ideology of white supremacy. So, so I would say we need to be careful. I, I'm hesitant to use the language of white supremacy to describe the current situation because I, I don't want people to be able to dismiss what I'm saying about the continuation of racism easily by saying, "No, white supremacy is over. You keep talking about white supremacy, but that's over." I want to say you're right. That is over. That 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 ended slowly from from the from Nazism through the civil rights movement through about the mid-1970s, but since about the mid-1970s, at least in the United States, nobody credible on the public stage can talk openly about white supremacy. That is over. Let's concede that that's over, but then let's talk about the way in which racism as uh, the superior position of whites over non-whites continues apace.
3: Okay. I want to make sure I clarify uh, before we move forward. Uh, you said that uh, even though you can pass and be accepted as a white person, you classify yourself as a non-white person, uh, Latino That's right. person. Okay. That's
0: right. That's right. And I and I should say about – Oh, wait a minute. About...
3: Wait a minute. Hold on one second. Hold on one okay. second because I, I want to clarify for our listeners. Um, since you said you are a non-white person, Latino person, uh, we are keeping our stats right on pace. Half of the non-white guests who have been on this program have disagreed, uh, either saying that they do not think a system of white supremacy exists or they don't think that definition is accurate. Every white person, and I've had way more white per, uh, white people on this program than non-white people, every white person with the exception of one has said yes, that is accurate and that definition is is accurate. And I think that is very telling because I think I've had even more than two to one white to non-white guests on this show. And the white people have slammed that, slam dunked that one every time. Yep, and that is a correct definition and have went on to explain how it is they see that white people are dedicated to maintaining exactly what you said. If I had to boil down what I mean when I say white supremacy, white over non-white That is, in my view, the simplest articulation of the system of white supremacy, a system that maintains white dominance over people classified, who white people classify as non-white. True, you can't talk about this or you don't see people talk about this publicly anymore and we are allegedly through with all that in my view that is a more refined form of racism white supremacy where people don't even think it exists they think we have a democracy or we've made lots of progress or whatever people think we have other than the system of white supremacy which is white dominating non-white people which clearly exists Worldwide in my view I could be incorrect. and I even think from your answer. You would be in agreement with White over non-white worldwide is what we have
0: absolutely absolutely so so that my disagreement I absolutely want to stress that we have a system of continued white domination and I, and I think that that um, Or, or let, me, let me let me break it out further. There is the fact of continued white domination, and that and that's just a sociological fact. I mean, you just you you want to prove it or disprove it, you just look at the numbers, right? But but you you look at uh, wealth numbers, you look at uh, in the United States employment numbers, uh, value of uh, property, um, access to adequate medical care, life expectancy, child mortality rates, rates of incarceration. You look at all of these different social indices. And they all demonstrate the fact of continued white dominance over non-whites. Beyond that, I would say there is a system of continued white dominance. And now that's that's a more social that that becomes more debatable. But there, but the claim is, we as a society are preserving white privilege, white advantage, preserving the disadvantage and the exploitation of non-whites. And we've built it into the very structures of our society. And we continue to rationalize it through our political system, through our culture, through our social discourse. Right? So, and, and, and I take it that that's what you mean by white supremacy. I'm in complete agreement that that continues. Mm. My... Objection is to the, the, the phrase, the term white supremacy, and, and my my only objection there is I think white supremacy can be understood in a more focused, more narrow way as an explicit claim of group biologically based superiority. Mm-hmm. and And that is largely over in public, and I think it's important to recognize that it's largely over in public. Mm-hmm. So so it so it's, it's it's because white supremacy can was is is in my mind so and i think popularly so tied to explicit avowals of group based superiority that i'm hesitant to use the term cuz it because it's not what i mean i i don't think most whites are running around today saying to each other and certainly not not saying publicly um We're the superior race because of nature and or and you know God made us that way. I mean, this is what people, this is what whites were saying to themselves through the 60s, Mm. through the 70s. I don't think they're saying that to themselves anymore. Not uh, some are, relatively few are, most are not. Even even in the wake of that, however, what whites are telling themselves and what non-whites are telling themselves about race and racism. Racism in the United States is allowing a system of white domination to continue.
3: Mm, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think every aspect of uh, the system, all areas of people activity, reinforce what you call white domination. What I say is white supremacy. Uh, my co-host Justice, she is here. I want to point out for everyone also, she is ten. So. Uh, but she does understand we are in a system of white domination, white supremacy, uh, and she is a non-white person, so she's here to try to learn uh, so she can help replace white domination, white supremacy with justice. Uh, justice, if you have questions, go right
4: ahead. Um, I do have some questions, and I have two. Have you written any books for 10-year-olds
0: or I I wrote a book for my granddaughter when she was 7. And it it didn't get published, but I but it it was one of my favorite books anyway. It was a book about Spikey Mikey. Hmm. Aren't you going to ask me who Spikey
4: Mikey
0: is? Huh? Aren't you going to follow up and ask me who Spikey Mikey is? What? Hang on, Can you say that one more time? <laughs> Justice, I'm just... I'm, I'm playing. I'm saying I wrote a book about Spiky Mikey and I'm waiting for you to ask me who Spiky Mikey is. Uh, who's, who's Spiky Mikey? <laughs> well, Spiky Mikey is an imaginary monster that I invented to scare my granddaughter into wearing shoes in the house. Because where we lived, it was cold, but she always wanted to go barefoot. And so I was worried, worried she'd catch a cold. So I told her that there was an imaginary monster named Spiky Mikey who lived in the floor. And that he'd come up through her feet if she didn't have at least socks on.
4: Okay. And then my other question is, how does white supremacy kill indra indirectly and directly in so many ways?
0: How does it... I'm sorry, I didn't hear you.
4: Oh, I said, how does white supremacy kill indirectly and directly in so many ways?
0: How does it kill? Yeah. Is that the question?
4: How does it... How does white supremacy kill indirectly and directly in so many ways?
0: Okay, so so I guess I I guess I'd try and understand that question. I I flip it around a little bit. I I let me answer it in terms of how it kills directly and indirectly. I think that directly is in some sense easier for people to understand. Um, uh, if you think about something like lynching, lynching as an expression of white supremacy was this direct expression of group a sense of group superiority a sense of group hatred that directly killed people and killed people as a way of enforcing the hierarchy of one group over another i think what people have a harder time understanding is how white supremacy kills indirectly and there i think um you know, I'd want to talk about Stokely Carmichael and what he meant by institutional racism in his book, Black Power, in 1967. Carmichael had this, this wonderful example where he said, you know, at that point a bomb had just gone off. A uh, white supremacists had just set off a bomb in the Birmingham church and it had killed five little girls. And Carmichael said, when white racists set off a bomb and kill five little girls, that's individual racism. But when the city of Birmingham, because of inadequate health care, because of poor living conditions, because of no work, because of hunger, allows 500 black children to die, that's institutional racism. And what Carmichael was getting getting at there was that to the extent that white supremacy becomes institutionalized and used to justify the immiseration, the poverty, the oppression, the exploitation of non-whites, there's real violence being done to people, even violence that kills people, through these uh, routine, everyday, uh, nondescript, taken-for-granted processes of white supremacy.
4: Okay, and and I was going to talk about what happened to my stepmom's life around when she was at the job. When she was at um, the job, what happened was, for one of her uh, coworkers he here in Washington white people classify him as non-white but over in Brazil people classify him as white, which that really confuses Non-white people of figuring out if he's white or non-white, but oh, by I... his but by his color, it looks like he's non-white. So Do you I agree? think
0: uh, I'm. So I think that that's a, a, a fascinating um, example of how race depends on where you are uh, I have a, a version of that in my own life so when I uh, uh, traveled I traveled across the Soviet Union in 1986 and spoke no Russian and uh, few people that I met spoke English uh, but people would try and ask where I was from and I'd say Hawaii and they'd say oh Havana because Hawaii was outside of their imagination, but Hawaii was within it. Or uh, when, I was tr- when I was in South Africa, I was in South Africa in the 80s when I was in law school. Um, some people understood me as Asian Indian. Other people granted me what was called honorary white status, which was, the, 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 I'm talking about whites, uh, uh Whites would treat me as if I were white, even though i didn 't look like them uh, because that was how they had uh, that was the compromise they'd made for people who uh, were um, uh, not, not South Africans, so people from abroad. in fact, uh, they started it in order to deal with the Japanese uh, they wanted to attract a Japanese business but couldn 't engage the Japanese in business transactions if they were going to classify the Japanese as non-white and oppress them through the system of apartheid. So they invented this category of an honorary white. So that sort of, I remember hitchhiking once in, in South Africa and getting a ride with, with a white family, uh, and they asked me where I was from, and I said the United States, and, and they said, well, it's terrible there, I understand, because of all the blacks and all the spicks. <laughs> and I said, well, not such a problem for me, I speak Spanish. So here were these people who had this hatred of Latinos, but they actually had no idea who Latinos were. It was just something they picked up in the media. Race changes depending on location. And what that tells us, what that confirms is, race is not a matter of biology. It's a matter of the social meanings read on to biology. So this, this friend who looks to you non-white looks to you non-white because you're drawing upon racial norms about white what white does and does not look like in the united states or more particularly in washington whereas if you were in brazil you would say this person looks white and though the language suggests that all you're doing is commenting on the physical features In fact, what you're doing is you're reflecting the cultural presumptions of your own location. So a, a, a more accurate statement might be, within the cultural context in which I'm operating, this person's physical features code as or would lead them to be classified by most people as white. Now that statement is as true for Brazil as it is for Washington, D.C. So you might say in Washington, D.C., within the cultural context of Washington, D.C., this person's physical feature would lead them to be classified by most people as non-white. But we don't say all of that. We don't, most of us don't even recognize all of that. Most of us just say he looked non-white or white, as the case may be.
4: Okay, and then uh I was also gonna say that he also knows about white supremacy.
0: hmm. I'm sure coming from Brazil that he does.
4: Yep. I don't have any more questions.
3: You don't right now. I will uh, ask a few, and I will come back, and hopefully you will have thought of some more questions that you can ask uh, Professor Ian Hani lopez um, I want to uh, definitely share uh, some of your book uh, with our listeners. Um, when I first opened the book, the first thing that hit me, you talk a lot about at the core of this book, uh, the question is, what does it mean to be a white person? Um And you talk a lot about how the white people uh, in positions to make that decision, whether it be judges or whomever, um, struggled uh, with, you know, what does it mean to be a white person? Uh, Is this based on some sort of science? Is this based on uh, so-called common knowledge? Exactly what is the criterion for picking out uh, who is white, who's going to be not white? What does it really mean to be a white person? Um, Before I read your book, uh, I concluded uh, that white means mistreatment of hostile to non-white people. That's what it means in the system of white supremacy. Uh, In fact, uh, I've concluded that the words white, white supremacy, race, and racism are all mean the same thing in the system of white supremacy, white domination, and that is white over non-white. And I looked at uh, at the beginning of your book. You have uh, a pe- well, just before you start the book uh, notes on whiteness, and I just looked at different sentences where you have the word white, and I replaced white with white supremacy, racism, race. And it did not change the meaning of the sentence at all. It read exactly the same. Everything, I think, that you intended to articulate uh, in these sentences stays exactly the same. If you substitute any of these four words, you can even do it randomly. Um, I'm just looking at the last paragraph here. Um, You said, uh, in this book, I I attempt to unearth and elaborate some of the perduring, seemingly fundamental characteristics of white supremacy. Now, you said whiteness. I'm just switching it to white supremacy. Particularly as these have been fashioned by law, nevertheless, I seek to talk about the legal construction of white supremacy in a manner that remains true to the argument that however powerful and however deeply a part of our society white supremacy may be, white supremacy is still only a human invention. Um, do you think that what I'm saying, those four terms, mean essentially the same thing in the system of white supremacy, white over non-white? And do you think that uh, the paragraph that I just read, do you think that the meaning, uh, the integrity of what she wrote is still the same if you replace white with white
0: supremacy? Uh, I think that's an interesting question. So so I think that that when you replaced whiteness and white racial identity with the terms white supremacy, you ended up with a coherent paragraph. That is, the paragraph made sense, but it's not the paragraph as written, and it's not the subject of the book. That is, I didn't write this book about white supremacy. Um, uh, I think George Fredrickson has a fantastic book on white supremacy, I think it's called White Supremacy A Short History, something like that. Fantastic. And he is really writing about an ideology of group-based superiority. Um, And he takes a comparative perspective the United States and South Africa, among others. That's a book on white supremacy. This is not a book on the the ideology of group-based superiority. This is a book on how race is created through law how how the how the very categories of race and racial knowledge are created now racial categories are central to the development the operation of racism of white supremacy can you
3: can you repeat that again i don't want to interrupt you but i think that is Central to what I'm saying. Can you repeat
0: yes. that? Yes. Yes. So, 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 racial categories are indispensable to the operation of racism and white supremacy. Okay. But to study the formation of racial categories is not the same thing as studying white supremacy. Or, 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 let me put it this way: it's studying an aspect hmm. of, a, of a much larger, much more complex racial system a racist system. This is An one aspect of it. Aspect. An, An indispensable aspect. An indispensable aspect. That's right. That's okay. right. Okay.
3: Um, and again, I I don't have a disagreement at all. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. It is a pleasure to have you here to uh, chat more about it. Can you talk about why? Um, because, I mean, that's the first thing uh, that you have written, uh, first page of the book, um, the question then: What is white? Why did you make that such a uh, core issue of what you talk about in White by Law?
0: Well, I think um, so. So let me so let me back up just a little bit and explain the project of the book. So one of the things that 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 I realized early on was that every that almost everybody thinks that race is biological. Mm. but that, in fact, race is a function of social beliefs. And, of course, one of the core social beliefs is race is biological, race is fixed. Mm. Um, If it's true that race is really a function of social beliefs, then in a highly bureaucratic, highly legalistic society like ours, it must also be true that race is a function of law. That, that law is part of the way in which races are created. And so I started with that idea and then uh, uh, started writing about the social construction race and started writing about law. And uh, through, some, through work by Neil Gotonda came across a whole set of cases that I thought beautifully illustrated how race is legally c- created. What happened was... That in the United States, starting in 1790, Congress provided that in order to naturalize as a citizen, that is, in order to come here from another country and gain your citizenship through naturalization, you had to be a white person. I mean, they, just, they wrote that. They put that right in the statute. You had to be a white person. And this meant that people seeking to naturalize often – well, not often, but, but, uh, but enough people – ended up in court litigating the question of who was white or not, that we have a body of 50-plus cases in which courts specifically set out to decide whether applicants are white or not, and more importantly, explain why some people are white or some people are not white. So the initial project was to look at these cases which, begin in 1878 and run through the 1940s and use them as evidence that law has been instrumental in the construction of race and not just race generally but but the white race specifically. So here, let me pause and emphasize this point. Part of what also struck me about the way in which race was discussed um, uh, by most people is that most people, when they were talking about race, thought that they were talking about minorities. Mm -hmm. There was a sense that if one wanted to understand the legal construction of race, for example, one should look at slavery law and see how blacks were defined, or one could look at Jim Crow laws and look at um, uh, the blood quantum laws or the the rules of hypodescent that said if you had one drop of black blood, you were black, All of that's right. All of that's a way of looking at the legal construction of race. But it's also the case that whites as a race are constructed, exist only as a function of social cultural beliefs, and exist in large part because of the way they've been defined by law. So part of the important project here was not just to illustrate the legal construction of race but to illustrate the construction of whites as a race. And in this sense, this book, while writing about cases from the turn of the 20th century, wanted to make clear that it was being written for an audience at the turn of the 21st century. And at the, tw- at the turn of the 21st century, we have a situation in which most whites would prefer not to think of themselves as white. As a way of diffusing any sort of responsibility for or any sort of way in which they're implicated in a continued social hierarchy. So I wrote this note on whiteness as a way of talking to a contemporary white audience, as a way of saying, I understand whiteness is complex. I understand whiteness varies historically. I understand that whiteness varies by individuals, by other identities like gender or class, by location, whether you're in an elite institution uh, or at, at, uh, um, uh, in an urban, poor urban environment. I understand all of that. And yet, whites exist as a group. And here's a book that talks about how whites exist as a group and how they've been defined by law. And this is, in a sense, about you, contemporary reader even if you'd prefer to think that whiteness doesn't describe very much about you at all. Hmm.
3: Very interesting. Um, I find this book uh, about the legal construction uh, and this book focusing specifically on the legal construction of the white race. um, I find this at the core of racism, white supremacy and how Uh, White people decide who is on their team and the implications for not being on their team uh, in a system of white domination, white supremacy. Um, Some of or I guess two of the more popular cases um, that you talk about in your book, um, Ozawa and then um, for my listeners who might not be familiar uh, with these cases, can you kind of give them a brief synopsis of of who these gentlemen are and, and what happened in their particular cases?
0: Sure. These are a fascinating pair of cases. So various people are going through the courts litigating whether they are white or not, and they're usually litigating in trial courts, and sometimes it's going up to appellate courts. Two individuals take their case all the way to the Supreme Court, and they end up in the Supreme Court within three months of each other. In fact, these cases seem like they must uh, uh, be reasoned uh, In a way that's almost identical, they're separated by three months, just by three months. They're both unanimous decisions. They're both written by the same justice, Justice George Sutherland. And yet the reasoning in the cases turns out to be diametrically opposed. So here's what happens. The first person to to get to the court is this individual called Takao Ozawa. He's of Japanese descent. He came to the United States as a teenager. He enrolled at the University of California, Berkeley, where I now teach. Uh, then he moved to Hawaii. He wrote, uh, uh, he filed suit to establish that he was a white person on his own initially. He wrote his own brief, and he he made a couple of different sorts of arguments. The, the first sort of an argument was an argument about culture and assimilation, and he really... Um, made a very extensive case about just how assimilated he was. His second argument was about skin color. He said, "If you really, if the statute says as it does, you must be a white person. Look at me. Look at the color of my skin. I'm white. Naturalize me." In fact, he said, "Look at the color of my skin. I'm white. I'm whiter than a lot of people from southern and eastern Europe." And then he, per- and then he. Um, uh, quoted a lot of different anthropologists who who made the same claim. So he had this two-part argument. The court comes to, comes to uh, decide his case and says, well, on this business about whether you're assimilated or not, white is a racial designation. That means it's about groups. It's not about individuals. So it doesn't matter whether you're assimilated or not. That has to do with your individual capacity. This isn't about an individual capacity. This is about the fact that some groups are unsuited for American citizenship. Which groups? Non-white groups. Okay, so what about this second argument? What about this argument that Ozawa is white because his skin is white? Here's what the court has to say. This is the court talking. Manifestly, the test afforded by the mere color of the skin of each individual is impracticable, as that differs greatly among persons of the same race, even among Anglo-Saxons ranging by imperceptible gradations from the fair blonde to the swarthy brunette, the latter being darker than many of the lighter-hued persons of the brown or yellow races. Hence, to adopt the color test alone would result in a confused overlapping of races and a gradual merging of one into the other without any practical line of separation. Here's the court saying race is not about skin color you think it is because we use terms like white or yellow or brown or black but it's not it's not about skin color because some people who are classed as white are darker than some people who are brown or yellow or the court might well have said are darker than some people who are classed as black Right? especially especially with this whole one drop rule mm. you have blacks who are physically indistinguishable from someone who is otherwise classed as white, but were legally nevertheless classified as black. So the court says it's not about skin color. Here the court is on the verge of an incredibly powerful insight, which is it's not about physical difference at all. It's really about what our culture says about groups. But that would be a revolutionary statement in in 1922 when this case was decided because that would be to shake the very foundations of racialist beliefs about innate superiority and innate inferiority. And the court has a crutch. It has a way to get around that sort of a statement. It turns and it says, we have consistently held that the words white person were meant to indicate only a person of what is popularly known as the Caucasian race. So here the court is saying, okay, it's not skin color, but rather than abandoning physical definitions of race, the court instead turns to scientific definitions of race. Hmm. And so it's gonna adopt this scientific classification that was then being popularized by anthropologists the Caucasian race. And so the court goes on to say, we determine that the words white person are synonymous with the words a person of the Caucasian race. And then it says, Takao Ozawa is clearly not of the race which is Caucasian because he's of the Mongolian race. Therefore, whatever the color of his skin, however assimilated, he cannot naturalize. He cannot become a citizen of the United States. Okay, that's in, the, in December of 1922. Here's what the lower courts had already run into, and here's what the court ran into immediately. Just as skin color had proved an unstable way to define racial difference, anthropologists had been having a more and more difficult time classifying the races of the world in terms of supposedly physical Uh, characteristics, physical differences.
1: Hmm.
0: Anthropologists had been saying things like uh, uh, Caucasian or Mongolian or Amerind uh, or Negroid. It sounded scientific, but if you step back from it, it very crudely uh, references to the great continents of the world. What they really meant was, well, there's Europe, There's Africa, there's Asia, there's North America and South America. We'll just apply names to those peoples and we'll treat those as different races. Well, that's not going to work at all. Think about especially the relationship between Europe and Asia. As you move east from Europe or west from China, at what point does it cease being Asia and start being Europe. Well, okay. So we're talking the Bosporus Straits dividing the city of Istanbul in half. Is it really the case that people on the western in, in Western Istanbul are white, and people across the straits, across the Straits of Bosporus, are yellow? That 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 these are people who are who, who bear who have more in common with, let's say. You know the person on the western side of the Bosphorus has more in common with the Scandinavian and the person on, just on the other side of the river has more in common with the Chinese than they do with each other? No, absolutely not. Obviously, there are subtle gradations of people as people are in more or less reproductive isolation from each other. Right? But this is the idea that the anthropologists were trying to use, that there were these great races that they were associated with continents, that they had these scientific names. That worked for Takaozawa, he was Japanese, he fits squarely within the supposed Mongolian category, a tremendous amount of difference between that and the supposed Caucasian category that described Europe. But the very next case to come up before the court involves someone from India, and in particular somebody who, was, who described himself as a high-class Aryan. Well now, where does the Indian subcontinent fit? if one is talking about Europe and Asia and North America and Africa. Anthropologists had decided that certain groups within uh, India, particularly the, the high caste Aryans, were members of the Caucasian race. And so comes before the court an individual called Bhagat Singh Thind, and he claims to be, and indeed anthropologists classify him as Caucasian. Now, the court has just said the words white person, which is what you're required to be to naturalize, are synonymous with the words a person of the Caucasian race. Three months later, Finn comes before the court, and as the court says... The eligibility of this applicant for citizenship is based on the sole fact that he is high-caste Hindu stock, born in Punjab, one of the extreme northwestern districts of India, and classified by scientific authorities as of the Caucasian or Aryan race. So here comes Thind saying, naturalize me, baby. A couple of months ago, you said Caucasian, or white person is Caucasian. The scientists say I'm Caucasian, therefore I'm white, therefore I get to naturalize. And indeed, several courts had authorized the naturalization of Asian Indians under exactly this theory. Now remember, this is the same court, unanimous court, the same justice, three months later. And here's what the court has to say. The word Caucasian is in ill repute. It is, or is in, I'm sorry, is in, is in, is uh, it says, scarcely better, repeat. it is at best a conventional term with an altogether fortuitous origin, which, under scientific manipulation, has come to include far more than the unscientific mind suspects. We venture to think that the average well informed white American would learn with some degree of astonishment that the race to which he belongs is made up of such heterogeneous elements. According to this is A.H. Keene, one expert, for example. Caucasian includes not only the Hindu, but some of the Polynesians, that is the Maori, Tahitians, Samoans, Hawaiians, and others, the Hamites of Africa upon the ground of the Caucasic cast of their features, though in color they range from brown to black. So here the court is saying, Caucasian? you got to be kidding me. We can't trust this word. We don't believe uh, that the people that the anthropologists are telling us are Caucasian are white. And the court turns around and says, says we're going we're gonna to go with a different definition. And it says, what we now hold is that the words free white persons are words of common speech, to be, in a, to be interpreted in accordance with the understanding of the common man, and synonymous with the word Caucasian only as that word is popularly understood. Wow. Three months after the court has relied on science, to say Japanese people are Mongolian, therefore not Caucasian, therefore not white. The court is saying, science? Can't trust it. Throw it out. We really know what white means only by reference to the words of common speech to be interpreted in accordance with uh, the understanding of the common man, or as is popularly understood. And here's the overriding significance of that. The court was right. You can't trust science. Science had promised, race science had promised, anthropology as the study of man in its 19th century form had promised, that it would, through a careful parsing of nature, demonstrate the innate differences between whites and all others. And it could not do so. All it could really do was gussy up popular prejudice in the guise of something official sounding and something scientific sounding. But in fact, the more race scientists tried to base their groupings on nature, the more they came to realize race wasn't about nature at all. And the court came up against that and realized Science was fallible. Science could not prove the race differences that everybody else, that everybody knew existed. Now, at this point, the court was at a crossroads. The court could have said, skin color's failed. It's not about differences in skin color. We said that in Ozawa. And science, race science, that's a joke. That doesn't make sense either. At this point, the court could have said, maybe this whole concept of race is a giant fraud. But it didn't say that. Instead, it said, well, we can't trust science and we can't trust skin color. What can we trust? The the understandings of the common man, the understanding of the word white as is popularly used, that is to say the court said, what can we trust? We can trust conventional prejudice. We can trust the reigning ideology of white supremacy. And that's what we're going to trust when we define who's white and who's non-white in a Supreme Court case.
3: Hmm. The context of white supremacy, Professor Ian Honey Lopez discussing his book, White by Law. I just want to make sure, because I feel this is incredibly important, I want to make sure our listeners caught that. Um, The court, three months apart, tosses out science, nah, can't really trust that. Uh, just because you're Caucasian, that doesn't mean you're white, even though they had just said that uh, in the Ozawa case. Um, at the end of the day, this boils down to white people, because I think that's what they mean when they say conventional, vis- uh, conventional wisdom. Uh, white people will decide who is white and who is not white. The people that we think are white, they'll get to be white. The people that we don't think are white they will be non-white. That's basically what this boils down to, uh, in my view. And really, in my view, as long as we're in a system of white supremacy, that is an
1: extraordinary
3: act of racism, white supremacy, because you are basically deciding who is going to be mistreated because they are not white. These people, uh, Mr. Ozawa and Mr. Thin, uh, they could not naturalize. They could not become U.S. citizens. This had horrible repercussions uh, on their life because they could not be classified as white. And some of these cases, they even went retroactive and snatched citizenship from some people who were white, changed their mind, and kicked them off the white team.
1: Tons
3: of people got mistreated around this. That's why I say, really, this is at the core of studying racism, white supremacy, how white people, really you're talking how racists define who is available to be mistreated because they Say they are not white. Justice, I hope you're ready with questions. I want to read this paragraph and we're going right to you. This is uh, in page
4: 66.
3: Okay, I'm, I'm going to finish this paragraph and then it's your turn. Page 66. This is uh, White by Law. Uh, Professor Lopez says that uh, the court correctly questioned the curious etymology of Caucasian, although for the wrong reason. It did so not to challenge the construction of racial beliefs, but to entrench them even further. The court for the court, science fell from grace, not when it erroneously confirmed racial differences as in the Ozawa case, but when it contradicted popular prejudice as in thin. These holdings ev- evidence that the court was committed to socially supposed races and racial hierarchies, i.e., white domination, white supremacy, not a search for subtler truths. Page 66, White by Law. Justice, go right ahead.
4: Okay. Does white supremacy mean the same as white privilege and uh, sorry, and white domination?
0: I would say that they mean different things. Uh, or I think let, let me try another. One. I would think it would be helpful to use those terms in different ways. So I would think for myself that it makes the most sense to talk about white supremacy as an explicit endorsement of the idea that whites are, as a matter of biology, superior to non-whites, and that non-whites are, as an innate matter, inferior. That's how I would define white supremacy. I would describe white domination or white dominance, I would say, as a sociological fact, something that can be demonstrated along a number of different ways of measuring advantage and disadvantage and showing that whites are disproportionately advantaged compared to the condition of non-whites in the United States and in, and I also think globally. I would talk about white privilege as a set of the different dynamics in which, the, 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 in which whiteness operates to advantage whites, uh, presumptions, so for example, uh, white privilege as access to material resources, uh, uh, white privilege as presumptions. I mean, if you, think about, if you think about the naturalization cases that we're talking about here, what we're talking about is which people get to become citizens and which do not. And so the immediate question is, well, why, why are some people fit to be citizens racially? And why are some races barred from citizenship? And the answer is that some races were thought capable of self-government, of, of democracy, of, of um, being intelligent and fair-minded and hardworking and capable of, of assimilating and thriving under the American way. And all of that, I, I think, is an expression of white privilege, the presumption that whites are uh, intelligent and self-directed and disciplined and hardworking um, and innocent in their, in, in their interact, until proven guilty in their interactions with criminal law. And on the flip side, there's this presumption that non-white races cannot handle the demands of citizenship cannot uh, are not fit for self-government. Um, it was said of, 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 uh, in, in Congress that Asians should not be allowed to naturalize as citizens because they uh, really only understood despotic rule, um, uh, that 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 they were into monarchical systems and couldn't be trusted to to uh, uh, think for themselves or be independent. Right. I would understand white privilege in terms of both its material aspects, access to wealth, access to power, but also in terms of these cultural presumptions, these positive presumptions that attach to whiteness and the negative presumptions that attach to non-whiteness.
4: Okay. Um, and you were talking about like uh, a white man being lighter earlier? Mm-hmm. How can that white man be lighter than the white people on the East Coast and the West Coast that you were talking about?
0: Um, so, so we've got a couple of different conversations that may, that maybe are being run together here, Justice. So, so here's what I was here's what I was this example that I'm giving, and this is an example that I I, I just love. If you think about whites as being from Europe and Asians as uh, and and Orientals yellows as being from Asia, that's that works okay as long as you think about Scandinavia and Japan, England and China. It kind of makes some sense, you know. You sort of think, well, what do the people from Scandinavia or England look like? They look like white people. What are the people from China and Japan look like? They look like yellow people. That's how the anthropologists were thinking. That's how race works in in the popular imagination. But if you look at a map of the world, there isn't a European continent and an Asian continent. There's what's called the Eurasian landmass. It's all one. And as you move slowly across it, what people look like begin to change. So at what point exactly does one decide this is where Europe slash whiteness ends and this is where Asia slash yellowness begins? Now, geographically, Europe said, Europeans said, Europe ends in Istanbul and it ends at the Bosphorus Straits connects the Mediterranean to the Black Sea there's all right there's there's the Bosporus Straits is it really the case that somebody on one side of this body of water which is you know four or five hundred yards wide in Istanbul is it really the case that somebody on the west side is white and somebody on the east side is yellow Right? That, that's just crazy. And yet that's this fiction that, that we're being asked to believe when we, when we subscribe to the idea of whites as European and, and yellows or orientals or Asians as from Asia. Right? That only works if, you're, if you take the crudest understanding of, say, England versus Japan or Scandinavia versus China. It makes no sense when you look at the Eurasian landmass and realize people change in physical features, in in color of their hair, color of their skin, shape of their face, uh, shape of their eyes, their height. They change gradually over the entire Eurasian landmass. And, And there is no sharp dichotomy. Everybody looks the same west of this line everybody else looks different east of that line that's just a fiction
4: okay and is white supremacy the strongest belief
0: i'm not sure so i so i think that that I'm not sure what we'd mean by something like the strongest belief. I, I, I'd say white over non-white hierarchy is one of the most deeply embedded uh, firmly entrenched hierarchies of the modern world. That it was built up starting with colonialism and with imperialism. It has a 600-year history, a 600-year modern history, that it has structured domestic relations in countries like the United States and Brazil, and global relations between the global north and the global south, um, and that it and that it must rank as one of uh, the most severe hierarchies. Systems of exploitation, oppression, and domination that the modern world knows is it the strongest i'm not i'm not sure I'm not sure how to answer that
4: okay, and when you were talking about like science earlier mm-hmm. also, how can you not trust science? when you were
0: talking about it earlier? I, I think that, that I think it's very important to understand that science is, is embedded always in particular cultures and particular times. The strength of science is what we might call the scientific method, the empirical method, where uh, you propose a hypothesis, you figure out a test, you run your test, and then you allow, challenge other people to replicate that test. And to the extent that others can replicate it, they can confirm what you found or, or disprove it, disconfirm it. That's a way of producing and regulating knowledge. And it's a very powerful way of producing and regulating knowledge. And when it works, it works great. But for all of that, science continues to remain embedded in powerful, popular ideas. And scientists, just like the rest of us, tend to subscribe to some of those ideas, uh, one would hope less uh, uncritically, but, but still relatively uncritically. So, so if you think about 19th and 20th century race science, Anthropology, for example, is founded as a discipline with the promise that it's, going to, that it's going to give scientific foundation, a naturalist explanation for race hierarchy. Prior to that, racial hierarchy was not justified on the grounds that it was ordained by nature, but on the grounds that it was ordained by God. God made white people superior. God condemned black people or brown people in Latin America to uh, slavery or servitude or hell. That was the idea coming through in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Beginning in the 18th century, but really gaining speed in the 19th century, you have this revolution in thinking about, about the nature of race. And at the heart of it is the rise of a biological explanation for racial differences and science is definitely invent, invested in trying to prove those differences even as it does some scientists for example Franz Boas who, who uh, really changed uh, how anthropology came to be done begin to realize that, that race is a fraud race is a mistake that, 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 that you cannot make claims about innate differences and so You have some scientists who are still deeply embedded in white supremacy and trying to prove white supremacy, and other scientists, such as Franz Boas, who are saying, this is a fraud, we need to reject it. And over the course of many decades, anthropology came to reject the idea that one could distinguish humans, categorize them into races on the basis simply of physical criteria. Now, that seemed pretty solid through the 1980s, 1990s. But beginning in the 1990s, we're seeing a resurgence of this idea that race is really biological and is being perpetuated now again by anthropologists, by physical anthropologists. And here, Justice, here's the way in which science is again being corrupted by popular ideas of race. You have scientists who are smart people who are doing their experiments with genetics, who are nevertheless operating in a a society that is divided between white and black and yellow and red. And as they begin to do their genetic work, they begin to figure out that some population groups can be identified on the basis of a few cells in a petri dish or a few uh, chromosomes um, or a few markers on their chromosomes, and they be, and 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 then they make this crucial jump. So, for example, it turns out you can identify people from Scandinavia on the basis of a few markers, or you can identify small population groups from China on the basis of, of a few markers on their chromosomes. Now you begin to get geneticists by who begin to say, well, we know that this person." because of these markers, must be from China. Therefore, we found there's a genetic marker for someone who's Asian. And it's that step, which is not science anymore. That's just a popular understanding that the Chinese are racially Asian. It's quite clear that population groups that are in reproductive isolation from each other that don't mix a whole lot, end up sharing certain physical and genetic markers. That's obvious. The fraud is the claim that large population groups can be divided into groups like white or black or red or yellow in a way that everybody within the white group has more in common with whites than with somebody in the black group, and that everybody in the black group has, some, has more in common with people who are black than with anybody in the yellow group, that's a lie. Science can't do that. Genetics can't do that. Even if it's the case that small population groups can be identified on the basis of shared physical characteristics or, or similar genetic markers. So once again, you're seeing scientists making a mistake that reflects the fact that, just like the rest of us, they're embedded in a society that tells them that race is real.
4: Okay. And why does racism have to be here?
0: Racism doesn't have to be here. That That's an important message.
4: Well, then why is it here?
0: Racism is here because for 600 years, people thought it was an important way to rationalize what they were doing to other people, to explain why it was okay that they were taking land away from others or forcing people to work for them or putting people in chains and sending them across the ocean to work for others. People needed a story about why that was okay, why that was just, why they were good people, even as they beat and whipped and killed others or drove them off their lands or forced them into, into uh, starvation or, or watched them die of illness. They needed a story to tell themselves about why they were good people, even as they were doing all of that. And it continues today because people continue to be advantaged along racial lines and don't want to give up those advantages and want a story to explain to themselves why they should not give up those advantages, why the advantages they hold today aren't really unjust advantages, but really are their due. And so it continues only because Race and racism continue because race and racism continue to be helpful to people as they try and justify their mistreatment of others.
4: Okay. And where does racism come from?
0: I think racism comes from an effort by people to explain why it is that they can treat other people badly. It's a way of telling themselves, this isn't me, this is God, or after it was God, this is nature, this is the way it's supposed to be, and I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm not doing anything bad by, by taking advantage of this.
3: Okay. I don't have any more questions right now. Mm Okie dokie. I'm going to ask two, and uh, I'm going to go to the phone lines after I ask my two questions so we can see if we have some callers who would uh, like to ask uh, Professor uh, Ian Hani Lopez. They would like to ask him any questions about his book or things we've talked about today. Um, And I did want to point out again for my listeners, when I use the term white supremacy, I don't mean uh, biologically superior What I mean is white over non-white, white White people dominating, subjugating, mistreating the people that they say are not white. That's what I mean when I say white supremacy. Um, You talk uh, in your book, uh, and I found this very interesting. uh, You talk in your book about the ways that um, the legal system and laws have been used to strengthen uh, the system of white supremacy. And you talked about how laws uh, can make racism, white supremacy, white domination, uh, seem like a natural and just regular, normal part of our lives. And some of the examples you used in the book, um, how different white people will say, well, this is a white country, and people don't think about the laws that have been in place that, make that so. The laws that restricted non-white people from being able to come to this area of the world, uh, or laws that restricted them from being able to become full citizens once they got here. Um, People assuming that if you live in so-called Harlem in New York, that you're a black person uh, and not thinking about, well, there were laws in place uh, explicitly and uh, implicitly that denied black people the opportunity to live in other areas. So they ended up being in Harlem and other areas uh, that are known as black uh, places where black residents uh, are at. Um, And you also talked about how uh, Asian Americans are perceived as perpetual foreigners. Uh, And again, not talking about the laws that are behind that, that restricted them from being here in the first place. Uh, And then once they did get here, uh, they were relegated to being a so-called foreigner because they were not allowed to become citizens for quite a long time. Right. Uh, can you talk about the ways that uh, the system of white domination, white supremacy has has used laws uh, in such a manner that uh, we don't even, th- it's just assumed. I, I think one another great example that you touched on was how we don't even think about Asian people, whether they're white or non-white. It's just assumed that they're non-white. You don't even think about that. And, the legal structure had a large role to play in that. Can you expand on that for our listeners? Right. right.
0: Well, I think that, that um, uh, one of the things that, that's remarkable about about race is how rapidly racial categories change and how rapidly racial practices change in conjunction with the idea that race is permanent and fixed and unchanging. Mm. So we all have grown up with the idea that race is a matter of descent. It's a matter of blood. It's a matter of biology. It's fixed by nature. And yet uh, uh, we've also witnessed remarkable changes in how races are defined and how racism operates in racial language. And, And we can really trace that if we go, if, if, if we look at it over a course of a couple of centuries. So Benjamin Franklin warned about a non-white race that was threatening to flood the Americas and and corrupt the the blood of whites um, and that had to be stopped at the borders. And he meant the Germans when he did that. Hmm. Now, in the 1850s, 1860s, the Germans came to be understood as white, but the Irish were then... Uh, depicted as non-white, uh, as a bestial race, um, as grossly inferior, some commentators suggested that the Irish were racially inferior to blacks. Uh, but over the course of the 1880s, 1890s, the Irish came to be understood as white, um, and the process, that, and, and then the, and then the fear. Shifted that that Jews and Gypsies and people from South and East uh, uh, Eastern Europe were were uh, filthy degraded were members of filthy degraded races and corrupting uh, white blood and, and those people too by the 1950s uh, became white so there's just been this tremendous process of of fairly rapid change reflected in part. Uh, uh, um, aided in part through law, and then consistently naturalized as unchanging and fixed, again through law, but also through popular belief and popular custom. So, so that's you know the naturalization cases, the prerequisite cases I write about are very much a part of that. I want to talk about how law today perpetuates ideas that make racial injustice come to, be, come to be seen as normal and legitimate. Under current constitutional law, racial discrimination involves intentional acts by a bad actor. That is, you, you, you need to find somebody like a Mark Furman who you can find on tape who said a word like nigger or spick, and if you can find that person, then you found racism. But, the court tells us, if all you can do is show that, and this is a real case, that the Georgia death penalty system executes blacks who kill whites 22 times more often than it executes blacks who kill blacks, that's not racism. You haven't proved racism. That's just a statistic that the court said appears to correlate with race. Before you can prove racism, you need to find us that one Furman. You need to find us that one bad actor who's fulminating and frothing at the mouth and spewing racial invective. This is huge. This is not just... so. It is not just that what's happening here is that the Supreme Court is defining constitutional law in a way that simply doesn't work anymore. Constitutional law simply no longer strikes down discrimination against minorities. That's a disaster. But that's, in a sense, a minor disaster compared to the much larger disaster of how powerful these ideas are. It is now commonplace in the United States that and 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 among whites absolutely among whites but even among non-whites that it's not racism if you can not if there isn't somebody shouting racial epithets that absent that it's not simply not racism and that all of these patterns that continue to show white dominance and so you know you know so so um uh what you know you've got all of these series of numbers that that show um, median income for whites at forty eight thousand dollars, but for African Americans at thirty thousand dollars or uh, uh, unemployment or poverty rate among african Americans at twenty four percent but eight percent for whites that's not racism we're told because racism only exists when you can find that individual bad actor law has been instrumental in promoting that very regressive idea that racism requires a bad actor and that in the absence of, of a bad actor there's no racism and so no social responsibility to engage in repair that's part of the way that we today are subject to a legal mismaking about how race works in the United States. And we're being told today by current constitutional law, racism isn't really a problem for minorities because you can't find very many people spewing racial invective. And all of these other patterns, all of these other continued Uh, Practices of white over black domination that can be sociologically demonstrated, they just appear to correlate with race, but they're not really racism at all. We we now, as minorities, as whites, as a society, are laboring under an, an ideology of race that is incredibly regressive, that makes it very hard to achieve equality. Because we're constantly being told race is no longer a problem. And we're being told race is no longer a problem by a lot of cultural actors, but but by one of the most powerful cultural actors in our society, which is law.
3: Hmm. Um, I want to make this the last one, and then I'm going to go to the uh, phone lines. And for folks, if you want to call in, 347-215-6071. Um, Can you uh, finish – and I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a very important uh, part that you, uh, I believe, added to your book. That's in the uh, 10th anniversary edition. That's not in the original. Okay. Yeah. Um, Can you – before we go to the phones, can you talk about how – what is it, so-called colorblind racism, how you think that's going to be the new way that the system of white domination, white supremacy, the new way that that system maintains white over non-white?
0: Yeah. A, a great question. So in a sense, I've, I, I've started talking about colorblindness. Colorblindness has these two aspects to it. One aspect is how it defines what is racism. And it says racism is where you have this bad actor who's viewing racial invective. Okay, so the, so so that with that very limited understanding of racism, you're also getting on the flip side a definition of what is not racism. And not racism is any sort of practice or any sort of cultural or political discourse that does not involve specific references to race. So what sort of practices? Well, if you think about, for example, the cocaine crack sentencing disparity, right, for equivalent amounts of cocaine or equivalent amounts, you get Uh, 100 times longer sentences for possessing crack than you do for possessing powder cocaine. Is there racism there, especially once you start to recognize that some federal courts overwhelmingly prosecuted blacks for crack and whites for powder, uh, even though rates of usage were relatively similar? Is there racism there? No, not unless you can find somebody who's using a racial epithet. So all sorts of patterns get excused as not racism. What else gets excused as not racism? Attacks on minorities phrased in the language of culture and behavior. So for example there was a a leading Harvard professor, Sam Huntington, who recently wrote that we need to worry about immigration from Latin America and from Mexico in particular because these people don't share our work ethic, uh, because Mexicans have high fertility rates, uh, because they're predisposed to engage in criminal activity. Now, this sort of, you know, the charge that Mexicans are lazy and have too many babies and are criminals, that's 200 years old. That's deeply rooted in sort of an anti-Mexican racism that can be traced to the U.S.-Mexico war. But because Huntington didn't say spic, and because he didn't say this is their biology, this is their innate nature, he claimed this isn't racism at all. This is just culture. This is just behavior. And colorblindness gives him protection by saying that's not racism. It's not racism if it's just culture and behavior. It's only racism if you mention a race word. So One aspect of colorblindness is to insulate current white dominance and current practices of white over black hierarchy from charges of racism. There's another aspect of colorblindness, which is to attack efforts to remedy racial injustice. So colorblindness says it's racism every time somebody mentions race. Well, who mentions race? Racial justice activists mention race. The government mentions race when it tries to enact affirmative action in higher education. Corporations mention race when they try and encourage diversity. So under colorblindness, the racists are the people who mention race, and the people who mention race are the ones who are trying to fight for racial justice. So colorblindness has this incredibly perverse dynamic where it says all the aspects of our society that continue to structure white over non-white hierarchy are not racism and are insulated, leave them alone. But you people who keep talking about race, you people who want to enact affirmative action, you people who want to promote diversity, you're the racists. And you saw that dynamic explicitly in the confirmation hearing for Sonia Sotomayor over this past summer. Here's a Latina saying it matters my my personal biography, my experience, matters. And you had Newt Gingrich turning around and saying, she said the word Latina. She's a racist. That's ludicrous. But that's also colorblindness. Colorblindness is protecting the status quo, protects things the way they are, because it says the way things are is perfectly fine and has nothing to do with white over black hierarchy. And anybody who mentions the word race is a racist.
3: Mm. Wow. Um, we have a couple people who called in. 253, are you there with a question? Uh, 253, do you have a question or comment? Okay. Uh, 301, are you there with a question or comment?
5: Hello, this is Jamal. How
3: yes, sir. How I'm you, well. Sir?
5: Uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, The question I want to ask you uh, is is about uh, affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, two days, well, a day ago, uh, Gus had a uh, a woman by the name of Peggy McIntosh, and she talked about white privilege. I hear a lot of people talking about affirmative action as white people I mean black people taking over white jobs now you talked about how the law is is changing and you said you heard something called race actors right
1: mm-hmm.
5: how does how does that a, how does a, a person who is non-white like um Supreme Court Justice uh, Thurman Thomas I mean no, not Thurman Thomas um that's Clarence Thomas. Thomas. Clarence Thomas, who says affirmative action, we don't need anymore. So oh, I'm
0: sorry. What was the what? What's the question?
5: The question is like you kept saying that we have a lot of race actors, and mm-hmm. the question I want to know. You said that law is constantly changing to fit other people. Basically, do you think affirmative action it will go away because the people feel as though that? It is, uh, we don't need it anymore?
0: Uh, I think affirmative action will go away. Uh, I think the Supreme Court, but it's hard to make predictions right now. Uh, we're, we're essentially in a situation in which Justice Kennedy, uh, Anthony Kennedy, is the swing vote on, on race cases. If you look at his, some of his recent opinions, it, uh, he voted against the continuation of affirmative action in the Michigan cases. It seems like if another affirmative action case comes up, uh, there might be five votes against it. But I think it's important to understand why there's opposition to affirmative action uh, on the Supreme Court. And it's not because we don't need it anymore, and it's not because people feel we don't need it anymore. Um, I think that it's important to understand that opposition to affirmative action is at root... A reflection of a continued sense among whites that society is basically fair, that that they have not been advantaged by race, that that uh, they have no privileges, no advantages, um, uh, no status or power that they need to give up, um, and that any demands being put upon them by minorities are illegitimate and unwarranted, um, and proof that minorities uh, can't compete and are whiners and are losers and deserve to be at the bottom. Right. And now, we just need to step back from that just a second and and think about that. Think about something like affirmative action, uh, and and the claim that it is that it is. Wrong. What exactly is wrong with affirmative action? People say, "Well, the problem with affirmative action is that people are getting something that they didn't work for, that they didn't, that they didn't earn, that they didn't, they don't deserve. That it violates meritocracy." Uh, well, how is that? And, and, and there's 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 two ways we can answer that question. One is. Is it true that people didn't work hard for it or didn't earn it, and is it true that the people who, did, who, 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 people who are white should get it on the basis of hard work and, and what they did? Well, you take somebody from a relatively well-off family uh, with, with wealth that reflects uh, a home mortgage that was guaranteed by the federal government at the time that the federal government was guaranteeing home mortgages for whites but non for, not for non-whites, and Uh, You think about the advantages they get from being in in, um, uh, public schools that are well-funded in the suburbs, and then you compare that person to somebody whose family lacks wealth, um, uh, partly as a direct result of uh, patterns of of, uh, exploitation, patterns of segregation, patterns of uh, disregard on the part of government for non-white communities through the 1970s at least, um, uh, who went to, to underfunded public schools um, in poor minority districts. And, and now, irrespective of how hard they each worked, the test scores they come up with are going to look very different. And that's not so, – so, so one response is, I don't really get this merit thing. If you're really serious about merit – then maybe you need to start taking into account the disadvantages that some groups have suffered and, and the, the disadvantages that particular individuals have, have overcome. And affirmative action is not then a violation of meritocracy, but it's a way of perfecting meritocracy. It's a way of saying we really believe in meritocracy, and some people have overcome much greater advantages than others, and even if their test scores and grades aren't as high, because they've come further, they've worked harder and deserve more right So when, one can under so one response to affirmative action is this is really meritocracy perfecting not meritocracy violating but there's a completely different response too and and that's to say you know lots of things violate meritocracy in the united states familial wealth is one of the grossest violations of meritocracy uh um this country um uh you know one of the grossest violations of meritocracy and it is incredibly prevalent in this society. why aren't we up in arms about that and I think that the answer is we're not up in arms about familial wealth and the the advantages it gives to some and the disadvantages it opposes to others because we're okay with the idea that that um, there should be these these advantages and disadvantages along lines of poverty and wealth in the United States. So there are constant violations of meritocracy which don't produce political uproar. Affirmative action has always produced political uproar, has always produced opposition, not because it was seen to have worked, not because it was seen to be no longer necessary, but because it was, it was understood to be illegitimate. It was understood to be a violation of what was taken to be the way the world should be, that is, with whites occupying most of the positions in fire departments or police departments or at elite universities or in Congress. And so a tremendous amount of the opposition to affirmative action is couched in principled language, in race-neutral language, that this is about meritocracy, I, w- I don't care if people are Martians, or I don't care if they're purple or yellow, or right? all of this race-neutral stuff, but it's really hard to take seriously as anything other than a deep-seated reflection or a reflection of the way white over black hierarchy is naturalized, is seen as legitimate, is seen as the way the world ought to be in our culture.
3: Mm. I uh want to make sure cuz 253 you are there if you have a question or uh the uh, like just I just wait till you finish everybody gets the question I have one more. Okay. If 253 if are you there 253? Okay, he's not there. Uh 301, go right ahead. Oh, wait a minute. I want to ask Justice cuz she says I g I I leave her out of time so I'll make sure uh do you have a question Justice?
4: Yes,
3: I do. Go right ahead.
4: Um that
3: is this, yes, ma'am. Um,
4: when you were talking about like black residents, um, what does black residents mean?
3: Black residents? Is that what you said? Yeah. Black oh, uh when I was talking about Harlem, black residents is just the people the black people who live in the houses in that particular area. The people who live in the house, uh, they are called residents. Um, so the house that you live in you are a resident in that house Uh, when i said black residents i was talking about the black people who live in the houses in the area known as harlem uh that they they end up being uh just it's assumed that if you live in that area you're a black resident because that was uh they had laws in place not too long ago uh and now they have uh implicit laws. It's not uh, on the record books per se, but they still have laws in place and systems that uh, keep non-white people from being able to live in certain areas or make it so that non-white people are forced to live in only certain areas. So that's what I meant when I said residents, black residents. Okay.
4: And... Um, the question I asked earlier, um, I didn't, I didn't hear, um, the answer from it, and the question was, do you have any books for 10-year-olds or 5-year-olds?
0: Oh, I'm afraid I don't. It's a good idea, though. Do you know of any books
3: uh, that deal with uh, white domination, racism, that would be good for a 10-year-old or a 5-year-old?
0: Oh, I don't know. Me either. Somebody needs to get on that.
3: That's something uh, we should have. That's right. Uh, I guess 301, we'll give you the uh, last question, Less Justice, unless you have another question.
4: Um, no, I don't. I do not have any more questions.
3: Okay, 301, take it away.
5: Uh, the question I have: uh, Have you ever heard of the Brookings Institute? Yes. Okay. Now, a couple of like a month ago, they was talking about well, it wasn't. A, it was at the Brookings Institute about the whole thing about conservative conservatism in America. And one of the per, people, one of the persons at the uh, at this talk, was saying that it should be a law that you have to get married. Now, the reason why she brought this up is because she's saying that there are not a number of, in the black and, excuse me, African-American and Latino communities, there are a lot of absent, father, absent, absent fathers. And she was saying that, you know, if they were getting married, then everything would be all right. And it piggybacks on what you said about uh, the whole thing about, she brought up the whole thing about this whole thing about, affirmative action will go away because they will have um structured home structures with a two parent house house and uh money coming in so the kid will have a better structure to learn and to be able to succeed without uh, affirmative action or a merit a marriage system. I wanted to know how did, what did you think uh what do you think about that?
0: And I can't use any expletives, right? (laughs) So here's what's going on. Um, uh, There's this, there's this kind of cliched, uh, uh, hackneyed distinction, uh, way way of distinguishing liberals from conservatives. Conservatives, people say, blame the individual, whereas liberals blame the social structure, right? And, and I want to push beyond that a little bit. Now, now, she's being conservative in the sense that she's saying, I'm blaming the individuals. If people would just get married, that would resolve all the problems. So the individuals need to act in a moral, upstanding uh, uh, way and take responsibility. And, and we're, we're starting to hear this from a, a, a lot of um, leading African-American figures. Even, even uh, President Obama has given a couple of homilies on, on people just needing to take more responsibility right but i but I want to suggest that, that that there's a couple of real problems here. one is the standard liberal response. hey, you know people aren't it, 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 just people just getting married aren't going to create jobs, they're not going to create safe living places, they're not going to create good schools they're not going to provide health care all of that's all of the structural um factors that put so much pressure on poor families, minority families, poor minority families trapped in poor minority areas, that's not going to change just because people get married. So, so that's, the, that's the standard liberal response, and, and I want to endorse that. I'm a standard liberal in that sense. But I want to push beyond that. I want to say, if you think about the, the conservative line that it's really the problem with individuals, there's a real group disdain that, that, that's, that's going on there, and it's partly racial and it's partly class-based. It's saying, essentially, if you folks were like me, you'd be okay. You'd be rich. You'd be living in a suburb. You'd be treated decently by the police. You'd have a good job. To the extent that none of that's true, you are fundamentally not like me. And you got to pay attention to that statement because that idea that poor people, that minorities, that that people without jobs are fundamentally not like me, that's a form of racism and of classism. That's a way of 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 diminishing the humanity of people who are trapped in difficult situations, right? And and that's also part of this disturbing dynamic. So that I'm sure I mean, why? you'd have to be crazy to think that people want to abandon their children or, or don't want to have a good job or don't want to provide health care or don't want to take advantage of good health care or don't want to make sure that their kids get a decent education. I mean, maybe there's some few people at the margins who are just barely socially functioning who don't want those things, but all the rest of us do. And to the extent that we can take care of ourselves and provide for our loved ones, every one of us would want to do that. But some of us are less fortunate than others and trapped by situations that are much greater than than we can change on our own. And to suggest otherwise, to suggest that the problems we confront are solely of our own making and solely reflect our lack of um, morality, our lack of willingness to take responsibility for ourselves, our lack of worth ethic. That's deeply troubling because it's taking away from our humanity. It's not believing in our humanity. It's not believing that we're all fundamentally the same folks who, who want to be loved, want to take care of our loved ones, want to provide for um, ourselves and the, and the people around us.
3: And the reason why I brought that question... Oh, wait a second. Hold on one second. Awesome. Uh, Professor Lopez, we had yes. people who called in super late. Uh, I don't want to take up all your time, but it would be uh, we would be grateful if you could take these last couple questions for the folks that called in. Is that okay? Sure, sure. Let's do that. I appreciate it. Uh, 414, uh, are you there with a question?
2: Uh, no,
3: I'm just listening. Oh, okay. Well, that cuts it down. 631, are you there with a question? Just
2: listening. Would that be me?
3: Uh, 111, the other one. Uh, that I can't see the air code, it's just coming up, as 111. I just heard 631, she said she's just listening, and 414, she said she's just listening. So 111, if you're there, I believe it's a female voice. If you have a question, go right ahead. I think think that's me. That's you.
2: I first want to say that I immensely appreciate you having him on the program, and I immensely appreciate that you've written the book, Dr. Lopez, and that you've come on to share your knowledge with us. Um, The question that I have concerns how I can tell as a a non-white person that is um, usually called black, how can I tell if I'm dealing with a person who classifies themselves as Latino or Hispanic but who is actually a white person? Have you met any such persons that you thought initially were non-white? I don't know if this is already the ground that's been covered. Have you met any persons who so classify themselves who you initially thought were white but then later came to... Uh, the conclusion that they were uh um, I, I may have said the the question backwards
0: but yeah did okay you initially yeah mm-hmm. yeah i okay, i got it. the way you initially phrased it are there are folks who are white who call themselves non white I've never met anybody like that i you know i've I've definitely uh uh read about there are a couple of firefighters, the Malone brothers, I think they were up in Boston. Uh, who decided that they wanted to at once take advantage of and also ridicule affirmative action, so they announced that they were black for the purpose of affirmative action but for no other purpose. There are cases like that. More common is with Latinos who can pass as white but who hold themselves out as Latinos and as as racially non-white. Here's the basic dynamic. Latinos can be of all sorts of different colors, all sorts of different features. White privilege works in Latin America similarly to the way it works in the United States. So it's it's just a fact that professionally one is more likely to encounter light-skinned, successful Latinos than one is likely to encounter dark-skinned, successful Latinos. And that's a function of racism in Latin America and also racism here in the United States. Among those light-skinned Latinos that one encounters, and um, um, among light-skinned Latinos, among all Latinos, about half characterize themselves as white, as racially white. And there are some, some... surveys that suggest the number could be much higher than that. Nevertheless, some Latinos who could pass as white reject that label and instead say, no, I'm, I'm racially Latino, I'm racially non-white. And, and how, do you, how do you know that? It's going to be almost impossible to tell from just looking at their features. It may be indicated in the way they dress to the extent that they wear a dress that is identified with Latino cultures. Um, more likely you're just going to have to talk to them and listen to how they situate themselves and and um it might be a matter of how they pronounce their surname if they have a Latino surname and you know they they can pronounce it uh uh sotomayor or sotomayor and that'll that'll tell you something about how they're locating themselves racially um It may be that that they will simply let you know um um, I'm, you know, I'm Latino, and, right, and, and, and they'll work it into the conversation, sometimes more, sometimes less gracefully. But I think what people are trying to do is locate themselves racially, again, in this political way. It's not a claim about biology. It's a claim of saying, proud of who I am. I understand that there are these ugly dynamics. I don't want to take advantage of these ugly dynamics. I want to stand in opposition to those ugly dynamics.
2: Right, and and I did. Oh, appre- um, I'm sorry, I, I did appreciate that, and I I I also have n- n- not encountered anyone who said that they were non-white initially. I haven't, who in fact were white. Um, I, I just wanted to be more, just a little bit clearer in the way that I asked the question, which is, there, are, I have encountered persons who don't use the word white or non-white, but just use the word Latino or Hispanic to describe mm. themselves. Mm-hmm. And let me assume and then I assume that they are non white and then I later have cause to to question that. And so I think you probably answered the question, but I just want to make sure that, that was Yeah,
0: the same. no that's that's a nice question. That's slightly different. So
2: So carefully
5: some did.
0: Latinos some Latinos understand Latino as a racial term. But others understand it as more of an ethnic term, meaning this doesn't have anything to do with my race, it has to do with more with my culture. And so it's quite conceivable that you're running into people who are describing themselves as Hispanic or Latino or Dominican or Mexican or what have you as a way of indicating their culture, but that leaves ambiguous how they locate themselves racially in the United States.
2: Right. And... I guess the the group that comes most to mind are the are the very light skinned Cubans, right? And are they, are they white in your opinion? Many of them, or the the lighter skinned ones, or um, are...
0: they are white in my opinion. And what what I mean by that is they hold themselves out as white. They think of themselves as white. They are treated as white by others. They many of them subscribe to. Um, uh, a sort of a racial politics associated with whiteness, including uh, racism against non-whites. So in all of those ways, they're white. Now, that's not to say they're white biologically, but I reject the idea that anybody's white biologically. Right? This is, they're, they're white on all... It, there's different ways to, de- to, to, to define the category, but if you define it in terms of how people describe themselves, how they present themselves to others, how others see themselves the sort of sociological beliefs that they subscribe to, in all of those ways it would make sense to describe Cubans as white, or, or though, many of them who hold themselves out as white. Now, that's not to say all of them. Now, they're definitely light-skinned Cubanos who say, I'm Cuban, I'm light-skinned, I'm not white, I'm Latino. There are definitely people like that who say that. And, and then I would say, well, because of the way they hold themselves out, because of their beliefs, um, because... Depend you know then then in those ways, they are not white uh, when they but do, I, I'm sorry go ahead hello go ahead hello and hello? when they
2: do and when they do say that, um, in other words, everyone would assume, including other white people that these are, these people are white until they assert very affirmatively that they are non white would mm-hmm. they then be subjected to mistreatment on that basis of because they self declared themselves as non white
0: uh Yes, yes, yes. In some ways, no. In others, so. So, I think if you're so. So, if you're light-skinned, but in other ways quite privileged, let's say professional, well-educated, uh, wealthy. Simply saying to the people around you, "I'm non-white. I'm Latino. I'm you know. You may think I'm white, but actually I'm black, and my family's black." And right that is not going to subject you to the worst sorts of mistreatment that are visited upon people who are darker skinned, poor, poorly educated, and jobless, right? You're, you're not going to be subject to the worst sort of mistreatment. On the other hand, you will be subject to a sense, I, I guess I'd call it a, a sort of a pervasive suspicion, Um a suspicion about your politics. Why would you say that? Why would you make people uncomfortable by talking so much about your race and your identity? Why don't you just go along? You'll be subject to a suspicion about your intelligence. Um, why are you so focused on race? Why are you afraid to compete just as an individual? Right? Those, those, those sorts of dynamics will begin to develop. <clears throat> um, but I think... Uh, professional minorities who could pass as white ought to reject the temptation to do so and take on the burden of of showing whites. One can be professional, successful, articulate, smart, well-educated, um, and also be non-white and and politically identify as such and socially identify as such.
2: Hello? Thank you so much. Thank Hello? you so much. That was very sure. helpful.
3: Sure. Yes, uh, Justice, do you have a question uh, before we get ready to close things out? Do you have any more questions that you've thought of, Justice?
4: Hello, are you there?
3: Yes, ma'am, we can hear you. Do you have any uh, questions that you've thought of? Yes, I have. Uh,
4: hold on, okay, just a minute.
3: Thank you for spending your time with us, Dr. Lopez. We're going to wrap up shortly. Great. No problem. It's been my pleasure. Ours. hours. Yes, ma'am. We can hear you.
4: Oh, okay. Um... How can we stop a system of racism?
0: <laughs> you gotta love a question like that. <laughs> isn't That's the question we're going to wrap up on. I think we got thirty seconds, right? <laughs> uh, uh, I think we we stop a system of racism um, by seeing it for what it is by by rejecting it in our own lives. By working with others, uh, so that so that uh, they too will reject it, and so that we can work in concert to try and change society, so that society rejects it. I think it's a long, uh, arduous battle. Um, there are advances. There will also be defeats. Uh, it's it, racism is is very deeply embedded in our society and still very much in the interest of a lot of people, um, not just in our society, but globally. Nevertheless, I think that, that, that um, to the extent that we can make connections with others and work with others, I, uh, we can continue to fight against racism. Okay, I also
4: have a comment. Um, and, uh, I think this show was a great show, um, one of the best shows that I've ever had, and I would like to thank, um, you for coming on the show.
0: Thank you very much, Justice. I really appreciate that.
3: Thank you as well. I didn't, uh wanna know three one if you had a final final question. Yeah, I
5: wanted to ask you a question. Uh back to what uh uh the young lady at one on one was saying. Like I can give you an example like Cameron Diaz. hmm She looks white. Right. Her father's I think Cuban or something. Mm-hmm. And she could they could consi- I mean they consider her as being white.
1: Mhm.
5: So would that be an example of someone who is from Spanish descent, who is considered as
0: white? Yes. So, so here's, so here's what I would say. It's important to understand, and this is a good way to sort of wrap this all up. It's important to understand that white is a matter of social consensus. It is not a matter of biology. Okay. So in 1950, let's say, somebody with the last name Diaz, no matter what they looked like, would probably not be considered white in the United States, even though they would have been considered white in Mexico or in Brazil, right? Right. So, so, but it's a matter of social consensus. Now, in, in 2009, somebody with the last name Diaz who looks like her who's wealthy who's professionally successful who speaks unaccented english is is likely to be considered white by almost everybody now you may still get the you know the the types down in arizona or texas or maybe in florida who say i don't care what they look like i don't care how well they speak english if their surname is diaz yes, they're not white i mean you, you you'll get some of that but I think the vast majority of people would look at Carmen Diaz and say, she's white. And to the extent that there is a social consensus that she's white, she's white. That's what we mean. That, that's what the court meant in Thind in 1923 when it said, the word white are words of common speech to be used as popularly understood by the common man. It's just social consensus.
5: Okay, so based on uh, the consensus, consensus of the population they make, excuse me, the consensus of the white population, they make yes. that choice,
0: that, correct? That's, that's right. That's partly how race is defined. Now, now race is also, though, to some extent, a matter of individual choice in the sense that you can have people say, I don't want the privileges associated with white identity. I don't want that to be the, the, the way I'm a, uh, uh, I'm treated, the the... the the way I'm expected to behave. You can imagine Carmen Diaz saying, I've got all this privilege, I've got all this advantage, I've got all this opportunity, I'm going to start talk I'm going to start speaking out against racism against Latinos. I'm going to start speaking out against racism against African Americans and Native Americans and Asians in the United States. I'm going to tell people that I am not, white. I am Latina.
5: So basically that would have to be an individual who is of a descent diss- a that, I- that is non-white but who looks like white and the construct of everybody of the population that says they're white she can decide right then and there I'm giving that up and I'm just going to say hey, I am against white supremacy racism and she can just de- give that up, Right
0: she can try and i think that for and, and 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 that would and that would work for some and it wouldn't work for others but okay. it would certainly be a challenge for for people as they try to or or how about how about here's another good example linda ronstadt
5: yeah linda ross and she spanish
0: she i i i think her mom is mexican i think that's what it is so so she did not really identify as Latina for a long, long time, and then started recording music in Spanish. And that really challenged people who didn't want to think of this successful rocker as a Latina. But she said, no, this is part of my identity too. Uh, You've got to accept this part of me too.
5: Okay, Linda Ross. I'm not into rock, but I'm trying to put it together. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Um... Like okay, I see. I see it exactly. What you're saying is that once the population make the construct of seeing this person a who is a non-white person white, they make the plus some other factors that play into it. Decide, hey, he's white, and then and she decides uh, I'm not going to do that anymore. Then they get
3: upset because she's not.
0: That's right. It's 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 a huge challenge.
3: That is weird. That is easier said than done. I know quite a few folks who allege to have or be in the process of disassociating themselves with the white team. That is much easier said than done. If white people, the bulk of white people, decide you are on the white team, you can say all day long, no, I'm not. I'm this, I'm that. I'm working against racism. If the white people still think you're white, you are still going to get all the goodies that go with being on the white team. You might upset them, and you're talking about racism and that sort of thing, but, but you are still, on still b- team. right. You are still going to be a participant. That's what I've seen from the bulk of people who allege to be doing that, and I've even heard many that say they don't even know how that would be possible to get off the white team if the white people think you're white.
5: And then you can talk about them and still be on their team? <laughs> I know white
0: people. I mean, we've had a lot of... You, oh, you need a T-shirt. You need a T-shirt that that <laughs> says, "You only think I'm white." I mean, that's
5: <laughs> amazing. I mean, you can talk about someone, talk about their group, and then still be on the team and still benefit.
3: There are white people who have been on this show who do that, who talk against race. Tim Wise talks against right. racism. Writes right. books against now, racism.
0: Now, so so here, I think it's really important to 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 see what's happening. We have constructs of identities that are, that are available out there that people use to make sense. So if there are some aspects of your identity that can code as non-white, for example, Latino descent, then you can opt out of the white identity much more easily because people can put you into another identity. So for example, you, t- you take somebody like me. I say, okay, I I, I don't want to be white. I, I, I want to reject these privileges. I want to work against racism. It's much easier for people to say, oh, we have other available identities for him. He's a Latino or he's an angry minority or he's a brown man. And because there are other aspects of my identity, my skin color, my surname, descent from my mother, that will allow them to put me into those categories, they can do that. Now what happens if you take... Um, somebody who has no aspects of his or her identity that code as non-white, other than their politics, Tim Wise, um, uh, there is no sort of popularly recognized anti-white identity. So that it becomes impossible to, for, for, for people who, whose every aspect of their identity codes as white to simply say, I'm not white anymore. Because, because there's no other category for whites or non-whites to put them into. Well, so know. it's very much the case. We're still trapped by these social constructions, this idea that there's only a few identities that you can belong to one but not the other, that they're mutually exclusive, right? And if, and if you get somebody who says, I want to be a race traitor, um, uh, I, 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 I want to work against white privilege, but every aspect of their identity their name, their physical features, their descent, uh, all code as white, there's no non-white identity that, that's easy for them to opt into. And that's, and that's what we're starting to run up against here. Right? Now, this doesn't mean that, that whites can't distance themselves from white privilege. They absolutely can, not by claiming to be not white. that That's that's not the issue, and and the identity is not the issue. The the issue is the politics of it. What is one's relationship to this hierarchy, to this unjust hierarchy? So it's in, so it's it's quite possible, indeed, in, indeed, uh, any white person could say, I'm going to start to think about how privilege works in my life, and I'm going to start to object to it, and I'm going to start to try and disassociate myself from it, and I'm going to start to challenge people. Who want to award me presumptions uh, on the basis of that identity? I'm going to start to challenge them not to do that, right? and and that is possible,
5: so, although difficult. So somebody, personally,
0: personally, very difficult, very challenging.
5: So basically, what they could say is this: uh, Don't give me this job because I know I'm going to get it because I'm white. What about that guy over there who's black? That's basically what you're saying.
0: Um, uh, they could do that, or or they or they could do. I mean, so so again, you get a, You get a sense of how difficult it is, right? But but you yeah. but you can imagine, somebody sitting around, and, and uh, so I so I get these these phone calls now. So I teach law. Um, uh, I have my graduates go on and become lawyers and they're working for different firms and I get phone calls and they say, you know, I'm on a hiring committee now and people are, you know, and people in the committee are saying we'd love to hire a minority, but none are qualified. What should I say? Right? And so, and I want to tell them, you know, you're sitting in there with a committee of all white folks talking about the fact that there are no qualified minorities. At a certain point, you might want to say, we're all steeped in white privilege and we're all operating in terms of subconscious beliefs about minority inferiority and we all need to get over our own whiteness that, you know that leads us to be so sure that there are no qualified minorities that's that's a way people can say i'm not simply going to take advantage of the presumptions of whiteness the privileges of it the camaraderie of sitting around in a room saying there's no qualified minorities i'm going to actively challenge those people around me to think about what whiteness means in my life and theirs.
5: Okay, I see what you're saying. I see you. And
0: then you can go get another job.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that is an excellent point to end on. There are consequences <laughs> for leaving the team. Yes, there um, are. Mr. Actually, uh, gentleman who did a review of your book, uh, Matthew Jacobson, uh, <laughs> he is coming on the show. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah, to talk about uh roots too, white ethnic revival in post civil rights america. He will be uh following you up. Um great, a fantastic book. Yes, I'm looking forward to reading it. He's been uh really receptive to uh coming in and chatting about his book and uh white domination white supremacy. So I'm uh appreciating your work and uh building on it because I didn't even know about his book until uh, I read your book. So Thank you again for coming to spend your time with us on a Saturday afternoon. It was a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I think uh, my listeners will learn a lot from listening to this program, sir.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me and, and for doing this good work.
3: Trying to, trying right. to. Please uh, keep up the excellent thank work. And you. We...
0: <laughs> thank you, Justice.
3: We might even uh, be looking to get uh, your other work, Racism on Trial, The Chicano Fight for Justice. Uh might be looking to check that one out as well if it's
0: as uh, you a construction. You absolutely should. Go,
3: will do. <laughs> All will right. Do. University of Cal Berkeley, Professor Ian Hane Lopez. Thank you again for coming on the Cal, sir.
0: Thank you. Right on. Bye bye.
3: Excellent program. Justice, she said this was the best show she's done so far. Is that correct, Justice?
4: Yeah. One of mine.
3: <laughs> one of her favorite shows. I enjoyed this one too. Four one four, are you still there listening?
4: Uh yes I am. Oh,
3: okay. Did you have a comment?
4: No, it's just a lot to soak in. Oh, okay. I will be re listening.
3: Right That's on. A lot. This, this is a great book. Was I didn't even, this? I'm sorry?
4: Oh, I was gonna say that was uh was this two hours or over two hours?
3: Oh, we went over two hours. We went about uh about two hours and a half. About two hours and a half, yeah. We soaked up a lot of time. Um, but it was constructive. It was very yes, constructive. It
4: was very constructive. We
3: had lots of folks to call in to ask questions, make comments. His book is great. Again, I would say, uh, oh, he's a non-white person, so you can buy his book. Um, white by Law, <laughs> it's great. I'm very serious about that, not buying white people's books, but he is a non-white person, so you can get his book. It's great. Uh, these Court Cases, Ozawa and Thend, it is amazing to sit here and read about how these white people – sat around and decided who's going to be white, who's going to be not white, and their reasoning as to how they came up with this. It is amazing. Uh, he talks about other aspects of how this uh, has changed over time and really goes into a lot of detail. But man, And as he said, critical to understanding racism, white supremacy, understanding classifications, who gets classified as white, who gets classified as non-white. Uh, at any rate... We will be back.
4: Is he going to be on the show again?
3: Would you like him to come back?
4: Um, um, I would like to. It, um, oh, I was just asking if he was going to be on the show again.
3: Uh, I hadn't uh, didn't have him scheduled to come back again, but he does have other books and he has other essays that he's written. So uh perhaps I could check out one of his other books because he does a lot of work talking about racism, white supremacy. So perhaps I can read uh some of his other stuff and see if he'd be uh willing to come back and talk to us again.
4: Okay.
3: I will do that. I will do that. I have to go and get a different book though. Um but like I said, he's written a lot of stuff so I'll see if I can uh pick out some of his other stuff and get him to come back.
4: Um, hey, are you gonna are you gonna be in the chat room?
3: Uh today? Mm-hmm. Uh, I might. We still have shows. You know, we have two shows tomorrow. I have to uh, finish reading and preparing. We got uh, the show tomorrow afternoon at four p.m. Eastern, one o'clock hour time. Justice. Uh, we have uh, Professor Vernelia Randall. She's coming on to talk about her book "Dying While Black" and how the system of racism, white supremacy, is designed uh, to make black people, especially sick and unhealthy Uh, we got that one I gotta finish preparing for that and then we have a second show tomorrow with uh, I believe a suspected white supremacist Uh, His name is John Delport he is a uh, student at the University of Washington said he's willing to speak honestly about his experiences he live. he grew up I think he was born in uh, so-called South Africa Uh, he's gonna be here tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific And uh, we still got two shows uh, Monday and Tuesday, so I have prep work. I might go in the chat room for a little bit, but if I was really disciplined in attempting to counter racism, I would go finish reading uh, Professor Randall's book and uh, getting my notes and things together for tomorrow's show. What's the first show? What
4: time is
3: the first show? The the first show tomorrow, our time, because we're on the Pacific Coast, is 1 o'clock for the people if you're on the East Coast. It'll be 4 p.m.
4: Okay.
3: Yeah, that's the first show, which should also be constructive. I think she knows Professor uh, Dorothy Roberts. She was on the show a couple weeks ago. Uh, Professor Roberts told me about uh, Professor Randall. I think they know each other. They do similar work, so um should be a pretty constructive show. Okay. Outstanding. I'm going to uh I'll go wave in the chat room for a second, see if justice is there. Um four one four three oh one, did you have a comment? I know you all's names, Mr. Hill and Hakima. Did you all have a question or comment before we sign off? I let uh, Hakima go.
2: No. Okay.
3: Um well
5: he uh to me he did, he explained um uh, a lot for me, especially the you know, being a race Because I know you get a lot of people on your a lot of uh White people on your on your uh, show that say, I'm giving up my white privilege, and I'm saying you can never give up your white privilege. You're white,
1: right?
5: <laughs> so I'm like, you know, I as he explained it, I understand what he was saying. In a, I, I understand what he was saying when they do, but at the same time, you can still you can actually just say forget about it. But they still welcome you because they, their numbers are so low. Or white folks, they're willing to take anyone. Mm.
3: So. Very. I agree. I uh, I don't believe in the whole race trader phenomenon. I will. Uh, I'll cosign on it once the system of white supremacy is I've over. I've turned my
5: code. I mean, like, come on, man, let's stop stop the foolishness.
3: Yeah, and I think that's the logical stance for non-white people to take. I think once the system is over then we can go around and identify all the white people who were race traitors and who were really anti-racist, were committed to it, and did the work of replacing white supremacy with justice. Until that happens, uh, no. Sorry, uh, I think all white people, none of them, are above suspicion. I don't care what they're writing about, what they're talking about, how many speeches they've given, if they come on the cows 20 times, I don't care uh, they will never be above suspicion as long as the system of white supremacy exists. And even Dr. McIntosh, who is probably one of the most arrogant, suspected racists I have ever talked to, oh, even she yeah. said that. So
5: yeah. uh, I heard uh, Kima say hell yes. So did you hear, did you hear the uh, show, she of is, Kima? She is arrogant. She is arrogant. And arrogant how? in what way?
2: Uh, she kept interrupting uh, Gus a lot. I noticed
5: she just presented herself as arrogant. Well, I just she got didn't tired of that. She didn't want to stay on the topic or anything like that. She was, trying,
2: she was talking about sexism.
5: Which I got tired of. I'm, I just thought why are we still, I, I don't know how, I don't mean, I'm sorry if I'm uh, uh, um, over-talking you, am I, Akima? No. Okay, I just get. I was so like, come on, we can. I understand when you got your construct of the the whole white privilege thing, but I just kept. I, I just couldn't get with the whole. Well, she kept asking Gus, "Were well, are you? Are you a uh, male supremacist?" Right. <laughs> and again, I I tried to explain to my my friends and people that the whole system, the whole, well, white supremacy is a male system. So everything that's under the construct or everything is supremacy. So it could be female, male, whatever. It's the, the most important, like Gus said, you have to get rid of the system of white supremacy. Once you get rid of that, that takes away all the isms. Right.
1: So...
5: I don't want to, like, like, I don't get into the subset or the subculture or, or what the dynamics are as as people say, you know, you're a male. And I'm like, I'm a black male, and you're a white woman. I'm like, what can I do to stop you from doing anything? And, I, and she's, oh, I know, a friend of mine, well, not a friend of mine, but an associate I work with, and she goes, well, I'm a female. I'm like, and I said, you're white. I said, that trumps everything.
1: Right, Mm-hmm.
5: You have that ace in your pocket. Like, I explained to her again. I said, well, I don't get it. Like, you can get a job. And i we all, are like, it's nothing but black males around. And we just all bust out laughing. We just bust. She's like, what? Like, you all can get a job faster than I can. I said, what?
3: That's not even true. We the looked at her like not even support that. We,
5: all, we looked up and laughed, and we all got up and said, and we, uh, we're going back to our desk. we talk to you later. I think we we said we... We'll leave this alone, because you don't understand, and we just leave you alone. And she just was at her desk like, I don't get it. I, I just don't understand.
3: <laughs> that is uh, very popular amongst white people. I, I think they get it. They
5: get it. I, I get they that got amongst, it. I get that amongst white females. Now, males, they know right away. White females, they don't get it. Because, you know, she. I've dated black guys. I said, well, what does dating someone have to do with getting a job? So that gives, I said, well, I'm not going to get into the whole thing. I, I, we all just looked at her and we just, we just bust out laughing and, and just walked back and went to our desk and like, and we just talked about some like, you know, our work or whatever. I just, I, I, I just, it just makes me sick. I get tired <clears throat> about uh, uh, men's oppression and I'm a woman and, and I said, I said the the person who, I mean, people who really need to say that is black women. So I really don't want to hear that. And you're being arrogant, and you're being a, a, patri- a patriarch, and, Jamal, you need to stop doing that. I'm like, man, look, I don't even get in discussions, but since then you want to go there, I went there, so. Mm.
3: Yeah, that's the system of white supremacy, to be expected. Uh, white people are good at the uh, ignorance and denial thing. That Well,
5: works I only, really well. like I said, the only thing I get it from is the dudes, or white dudes already know. They, we we got this, but I can understand where white women don't really get it because they're, they're under their own oppression by their own kind. Now I said I can be, I told her I said well I can understand you being oppressed by your own kind, but I've never seen a white person a white excuse me a black male oppress another white another white person or a white man or a white woman. And I asked her, I said if you could if you could show it to me I greatly change my ideas and believe what you say. By the way, she couldn't find one, so that was... The
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to... I don't really get that. I don't know. The white people that I talk to now, it's very rare if I bump into a white person who does not... Male or female, who does not agree immediately that we're in a system of white supremacy. It. I mean, it's very rare. Um, what I used to say when that did happen is it seems there's a lot of evidence that... Whatever problems white people had, if they were fighting amongst themselves, uh, be it a white man fighting with a white woman or mistreating white women, everything would come to a screeching halt. If it looked like a non-white male, especially a black male, looked like he wanted to look at a white woman, everything came to a screeching halt and the white team formed like Voltron. To go and take care of that black male in jail, beatings, lynching, whatever. Like nothing galvanizes the white team like the threat to a white woman, uh, and that did very well for silencing people. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that gets them all the time.
5: Thank you all the time.
3: Again, we will be back tomorrow. Two shows, four o'clock p.m. Eastern, one o'clock. Pacific for the first show, Vernelia R. Randall, author of Dying While Black. Second show, John Delport, suspected white supremacist. Uh, he's a uh, faculty member or member of the College of Education at the University of Washington. That show is 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Justice and Gus, back tomorrow. Uh, Justice, last word. Anything you want to say before we go?
4: Um... Uh, No, I do not. I just hope that the two tomorrow shows are going to be great.
3: I think they'll be fabulous. You'll have excellent questions again, I'm sure. Hopefully our listeners, they will come back, call in, be in the chat room. And, uh, yeah, we'll hopefully get more constructive information on replacing white supremacy with justice. My apologies to Mr. Williams. I had intended to play the commercial for counter-racism.com, but I'm a little far from the computer, so I can't do it today. I will make sure I do it tomorrow. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we will be back uh, Sunday, August 30th, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, two shows tomorrow. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and thank you, Professor Ian Hane Lopez. Uh, Oh, and thanks Back the Bus. He was helpful in getting me the book. Thanks, non Wick. He was helpful in making the phone call happen. We'll catch you all tomorrow. Replace white supremacy with justice. Thanks for listening.
4: Thank you.